This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton. In 2007, I went to the Arctic on a Russian icebreaker with scientists and journalists to study and see climate change. The trip changed my life, and on this show, we will talk about scientists who change other people's lives and how burning fossil fuels is affecting the life of everyone, everywhere. After I returned from the Arctic, I put together a slideshow of my time in the Arctic, walking on the vast tundra, seeing indigenous villagers, flying around in a helicopter over ice sprinkled across the Arctic Ocean. And sitting at my kitchen table after returning, I reflected upon the science I'd learned and the natural beauty I witnessed, and I cried and cried and cried. And I resolved to, uh, when I got it together, I resolved to act upon what I had learned and created Climate One here at the Commonwealth Club. One of the first things I went to do uh, when I decided I wanted to do Climate One is I went to Stanford and talked to Steve Schneider. And we sat outside on a patio one day, and uh, he laid out who's who and what's what uh, on climate science, and that was 2007. He became the first member of the Climate One Advisory Council, And in 2009, he launched his last book here, Science as a Contact Sport. We'll be hearing a little bit of that talk later. In 2010, I was emailing Steve when he was in Europe and invited him to come to a dinner, an event here at Climate One with the blogger Joe Rome and others. And he wrote back and said, I'm not in the best of health. I got to stop burning the candle on both ends and in the middle, too. But he said he would come. He's flying back from Europe. He was going to come from SFO up here to Climate One. And he died on that flight. Never made it. So um, that evening turned into remembering Steve Schneider. And after that, uh, I created the Climate One Award in his memory. It's now an annual award. This is the fifth year honoring one of the founding fathers of modern climate science. And that $15,000 award is funded by Tom Burns, Nora Machado, and Mike Haas. So I'm honored here now to be with the 2015 recipient of the Stephen Schneider Award for Climate Science Communication. Chris Field is Director of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. He was one of the candidates in a recent election to be chair of the UN Climate Scientists and is an expert on how carbon dioxide moves around from smokestacks to trees and soil and many places in between. He also studies how ecosystems can be part of a climate solution. Dr. Field is a leading scientific researcher, educator, and communicator who is frequently quoted in the mainstream media. In fact, the lead New York Times story after the Paris Climate Agreement, the first person quoted was Chris Field. Please welcome him to Climate One today. Thank you, Greg. Chris Field, welcome to Climate One. Thanks so much. Steve, Steve Schneider was quite a character, quite a guy. Uh, he was one of the founding fathers of climate science in the 60s and 70s. What impact did he have on the field of understanding how the climate system works? You know, Steve had fingerprints that we see throughout climate science. I think that 
probably his greatest impact was really on understanding that even as the science advances, we're not going to have 100% confidence in the answers, and we need to not only recognize the bounds of the uncertainty, but we need to quantify it and figure out ways to communicate it. Uh, the, the recent Paris Agreement is really grounded in the concept of climate risk, and I think that there's no person who contributed anything comparable to the development of the concept of climate risk as Steve. He often talked about an insurance policy to sort of relate it to people. You know, how many people have had a fire? Well, not many. What, 2 to 3% of people have a fire every year? Yet everyone has insurance. And he talked about we need an insurance policy on the earth. He's a master of the metaphor and really was able to not only uh, explain in simple terms why we need an insurance policy, but why it was so important. And I think that uh, there was something just about his manner that communicated not only a terrific level of knowledge and understanding, but a, a deep passion that really connected with people. And how about as an educator and mentor, there's a whole generation of climate scientists who were trained partly by him, people who uh, took his classes at Stanford and elsewhere. So how about that legacy? And a bunch of, of them are sitting out there. <laughs> <laughs> That legacy of a, of a mentor, people who he trained, how, how does that impact the field? Uh, you know, the Paris Agreement is really a turning point, and I think it's a turning point that's built on literally thousands of careers. And I'm sure that if you were to survey the people who've contributed to IPCC reports over the last 25 years, you wouldn't find... Uh, 10% that didn't have some kind of a connection with Steve and his work. And so, you know, one of the things that's wonderful about climate science, and as I, I look across the audience and see people like Kevin Trenberth, who's had also an incredibly pervasive influence, or, you know, Ben Santer or Michael Mann, that, uh, that, that there's just this interconnected web where essentially everybody is supported by the intellectual foundations that you know, this community created. And we're here to remember him and honor you. So what's your story about you wanted to be a mountaineer? How did you get into this climate science thing? Well, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I said, well, what, what can you study that gets you into the mountains? And uh, I did a simple criterion. And, uh, and, and uh, plants living in stressful environments was the only thing I could identify that had a high probability of getting me into the mountains every weekend. <laughs> And that's, uh, that's, uh, I started studying plants under stress, and I decided that eventually it's what puts plants under stress is, is the global environment, and things went from there. Plants under stress, I think that's winemaking, right? A little bit of stress, terroir. Yeah. Well, you, you, you it, but only if they grow on vertical walls and little cracks. <laughs> yeah, not as much, not as interesting. And how about the, the mentors uh, and role models you've had along the way? Who's really been... There for you. Uh, you know, the, the, the first scientific uh, role model I had, and well, after I got out of my Darwin phase, uh, was, a, was a wonderful ecologist at Harvard named Otto Solbrig. And, and Solbrig uh, recognized that you could study the most pedestrian organism and get deep insights. Solbrig was most famous for his studies of dandelions. And uh, what, what Solbrig discovered was that by asking potent questions about simple organism, you get incredibly deep answers and and really introduced me to the concept of 
using model ecosystems for ecological research. And that's really been the foundation of my work. When I, when I came to Stanford and was able to study with people like uh, Hal Mooney and Paul Ehrlich and, and Joe Barry, uh, th- they really opened the idea to a much broader range of, of model systems and, and figuring out how to ask the right questions so it made an impact not only on the little plot you're studying or in central California, but made an impact at the whole world. And systems are hard for uh, Americans to understand. We don't learn about systems thinking very much. A lot of, you know, our, uh, I've had programs here on, on that. So how do you communicate a complex system like the climate system in a way that regular people can understand how something abstract and far away relates to their life? You know, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with the idea that it's uh, complicated and far away. I think that if there's a single message that's, clearer than any other in the recent assessments of climate science is that we're all vulnerable. Vulnerability has different textures and different flavors in different places, Uh, but there's nobody who's not influenced by high temperatures or heat waves. And if you're, even if you're in a place that doesn't experience a climate extreme, we live in an environment now that's so interconnected by trade and migration and supply chains that there really isn't anybody who's safe. And I think people understand that, that you don't go about your daily life without uh, almost continuously intersecting with topics where we haven't provided comprehensive protection and where, in fact, you know, this is another one of Steve's great contributions, uh, complicated surprises can emerge because of the interaction of five or six or seven things. So if uh, someone in California says, why does the melting Arctic matter to me? Your answer is? Uh, there are a huge number of reasons a, a melting Arctic matters to everybody, Some of them have to do with the way it influences the future trajectory of climate. Um, Of course, if we're talking about ice on land, it has a lot to do with coastal risks. But even more than that, it has to do with changes in the way the global economy is going to work, where goods are going to be shipped, where they're going to be delivered, uh, whether there are indigenous cultures that are thriving along Arctic habitats. There are just so many places where... Uh, issues can bubble out of a place where they originate and have a global impact. You uh, are a, a mountain biker, and uh, climate is often thought of as a uh, life-or-death issue, existential issue uh, for people, particularly in vulnerable areas, yet you've done something called the death ride. What is the death <laughs> ride, and how did you survive it? Because I'm very impressed. <laughs> uh, you know, um, the one of the great uh, features of of being a parent is uh, being challenged by your children and inspired by them and my when my son was uh, was twelve he was um, he was awkward and and concerned about uh, whether he was ever going to uh, turn into an athlete and so i I first convinced him to uh, try mountain biking, and then his aspirations rapidly outstripped mine. And then within a, a few months, we were signed up for the death ride, uh, one which is, uh, is, is relatively famous in California. How many people have heard of the death ride? I don't have to say what the death a lot ride of is. Hands up in the audience, yeah. So, yeah. and anyhow, we did the death ride six times together, and it really cemented a relationship that's. Uh, uh, I mean, this client, this, this climate <laughs> and science, and also it, it really prepares you to deal with those. IPCC approval sessions. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, again, how, mu- how much elevation and how long is that ride? <laughs> we could get off the death ride. It's, it's, no, it's, 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 it's 16,000 feet of climbing and 129 miles. How about that? I mean, that's right. pretty amazing. Yeah, 16,000 feet. So would you rather climb 16,000 feet or be locked in a room with IPCC authors talking about, what, about one sentence for eight hours? <laughs> Actually, a one sentence in eight hours is pretty good. <laughs> take that any day. It's, the, it's, when you, it's when you spend 24 hours and are still in the same sentence. Oh, my God. Uh, I want to roll a, a piece of uh, tape here from Steve Schneider talking about how tipping points and climate is a moral issue, and then we'll talk about those things. Uh, this is Steve Schneider in 2009 talking at Climate One. What's the worst thing about tipping points like Greenland? We will probably not know when we've crossed it for 50 years. So our behavior in the next generation could precondition a sustainability issue for a millennium or 10, because when, once you melt an ice sheet, it's thousands of years to get it back, based upon the convenience of one species for one generation. I find that a very morally daunting prospect. And the real question then is, and this is where the policy debate comes along, how much is it going to cost to fix this? And that's what you've been concentrating on in Climate One, is getting people to talk about that. Let's talk about three things. That's Stephen Schneider, the late scientist, talking at, at Climate One in 2009. Tipping points. They're there, but we may not know them until we've passed them. So how could, is the possibility of climate changing really quickly, Chris Field? You know, I think there are three tipping points that we want to be especially concerned about. The little clip from Steve identified one. Uh, commitment to irreversible loss of an ice sheet. And one of the things people don't often realize is that there are fundamental physics that require that once you pass a certain amount of ice loss on either Greenland, which is order seven meters of sea level equivalent, or West Antarctica, which is order another five meters of sea level equivalent, uh, the process becomes essentially unstoppable even if warming stops. Uh, the melting probably requires hundreds of years, but the idea that we are committed to many meters of sea level rise has a truly existential quality for people around the world fundamentally important, and I think it's a critical driver of the thinking about the 1.5 versus 2 degree uh, target for the Paris Agreement. Uh, A second really critical threshold has to do with commitment to biodiversity loss. We know that once you lose a species, you never get it back, and there have been compelling arguments put forward that we may already be at the early stages of a major mass extinction. Again, a a heavy moral burden to bear, much in the same sense that Steve described in the clip. A third tipping point that we really want to be aware of is uh, the initiation of vicious cycle feedbacks where we, as a consequence of changing the climate, initiate processes that further exacerbate the climate warming, and the best understood of those is thawing of permafrost, permanently frozen soils that have large amounts of organic matter in them that, when thawed, uh, basically decompose really rapidly, releasing a combination of carbon dioxide and methane to the atmosphere, potentially in a way that could become unstoppable. 
those three tipping points, I think, really shape the science of where we are now. Uh, we're highly confident that there is a tipping point out there somewhere. We're not highly confident about where it is, and there is, as a consequence of those two things, a compelling motivation to take a precautionary approach. And one of the other things in that clip is the cost. What's the cost to fix this? There's a big debate about what the cost is, and uh, what it looks like to me is that uh, the cost is not comparable to the uh, to the issues that are at risk. But it is true that only a few years ago, people thought we might be looking at uh, a need for bold new technologies, for technology moonshots in order to solve the problem, that we might be looking at many decades at which fossil energy sources were substantially cheaper than renewables. And you know what's dramatic now is that we're seeing place after place where renewable energy is is cheaper than fossil, or at least is cost competitive. Uh, we're looking at a world where there's still something like half a trillion dollars a year of subsidies for fossil, and if you think about removing those, we would see place after place where renewable energy solutions were cheaper. And we still have a ton of work to do to make the costs uh, pencil out, but, but my sense is that we're not anywhere looking at uh, a, a balance sheet where the opportunities of ambitious investment in solving the climate challenge are uh, anywhere near the same scale as the cost, that, that the opportunities are gigantic and the costs are, um, you know, it's much more about a realignment than it is about, about deep investments and kind of earth-changing kinds of strategies. Some numbers are what one to two percent of global GDP. This is a, you know, there's quite a. You're not an economist, so there's quite a debate. But it's it's a small percentage of the overall economy. You know, those one to two percent numbers are mostly for much higher stabilization levels than the ones I hope we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that we have no idea um, what we've seen in just the last few years is a dramatic improvement in our ability to envision a world that's based on 100 percent non-emitting energy sources. You talk about a car driving down the road of life and nails. So spin that metaphor out for us. You know, for, <laughs> we're driving down the road. What are we looking at? You know, uh, I, one of the metaphors I like is um, something that helps people understand the nature of climate risk, how it starts with little risks and you build big risks, and also the nature of the solutions that we can bring forward. So, you know, I think of the global economy as being a, a, a big semi-truck that's driving along the road, and it's creating uh, a, amazing value for lifting billions of people out of poverty. There's every reason to understand that that truck's progress has been a, a good thing overall, but it is leaking these nails on the road behind it and the road that the rest of us are driving on. And, you know, at first, as the occasional flat tire was an issue, uh, some of those flat tires led to uh, to really serious accidents. And once you get a lot of serious accidents, you have the possibility of really catastrophic pileups. And, and that's the way I see the climate system unfolding. It's not mostly about the averages. It's mostly about the extremes. And it's mostly about the way... Uh, extremes interact or or extremes interact with a lack of preparedness. The car with bald tires or a really bad bumper is in much worse shape than uh, 
than a car that's well prepared. Uh, but the other thing I like about the analogy is it really lets us see the, um, the three kinds of strategies we can use for addressing the challenge. Uh, one strategy is adaptation, and uh, rich countries especially can get super thick tires or... Uh, or Steel-belted radials, uh, yeah. You know, and whatever. Um, Carbon-belted maybe would be a better <laughs> uh, analogy here. But um, there are lots of things we can do, and things that can be done around the world, often at low cost and, and in win-win settings. Uh, the, the smart thing to do, though, is to make sure that we don't get so many nails that the adaptation strategies don't work. And that's the mitigation strategy, decreasing the rate at which these nails go on the road. And part of the reason I like the uh, nail on the road analogy is it also introduces the concept uh, that we could geoengineer the climate potentially. Uh, and the idea with geoengineering, especially the aspect called solar radiation management, is we might uh, put a different pollutant up in the sky that would reflect sunlight back into space. And, and I think of that as like putting a sheet of paper over the, over the nails. The first couple of cars might uh, be protected, but beyond that, uh, we really don't know. Steve Schneider called it planetary methadone. <laughs> no, let's uh, you know, uh, the, my, my sheet of paper doesn't last very long, and so I hope methadone lasts longer. <clears throat> Climate scientists have been subjected to a lot of personal attacks. Uh, 2009, there was ClimateGate, you know, people hacking in. There's been litigation, people involved. So what's it like to be a climate scientist and get hate mail and um, suffer those kinds of personal attacks? You know, I, I have to say with, with Ben and Mike Van sitting here that, that there, there are real pioneers who took the, took the brunt of the, the, of the, the, yeah. of the um, really nasty stuff. And I think that by the time that I was really established in this business, the, the real pioneers had... Um, had opened up an environment in which, you know, the kinds of attacks that the, the, the skeptics were, were old and tired and, and ineffective by the time I came along. But it wasn't true early on. And I think the, that, you know, there are a, a wide range of heroes. And, uh, you know, my hat goes off to the people who really persevered through all of that. I'm looking around. There's a lot of amazing scientists in this room, recognizing some of the faces. It's really great to see. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Chris Field, the winner of the 2015 Stephen Schneider Award at Climate One. He's head of the Department of Global Ecology at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford University. We're joined now by Jane Lubchenco, former chief of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA now retired as the goddess of weather. She's a distinguished <laughs> professor uh, at Oregon State University and U.S. Envoy for Oceans. Ken Alex is director of California's Office of Planning and Research, the Governor's Brain Trust. He's a senior advisor to Governor Jerry Brown, who always says exactly what Ken Alex wants him to say. <laughs> he traveled with Governor Brown to the recent Climate Summit. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you, Jane Lubchenco, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement is historic. A lot of people have been working toward this for, for decades. Take us to that moment where you learned about it, where you, you know, where were you, how do you feel about Paris as a, the Paris climate deal? This is such a big deal. It's something that has been such a long time in coming. You know, it's been uh, decades that people have been working toward a meaningful agreement that would really put the the whole planet on the right path. And uh, it, there's just so much excitement 
around the agreement. And in, in reality, even though it doesn't get us as far as we need to go, uh, it sets us on that path. And for the countries of the world, with all these different agendas, all these different concerns, to come together and agree to something that was even not just the bare minimum, but more aggressive than that, was just hugely exciting to everybody. Uh, I wasn't in Paris, but I was following all of the action uh, in many different uh, news feeds and personal emails and Twitter accounts. Uh, and I, I could just sense not only in Paris, but around the world, the relief, the excitement, the uh, sort of recommitment that it, it, it energizes everybody. And I think it's really uh, a virtuous cycle. You know, good things feed on good things. And it really is an amazing accomplishment. And I have to say how important it was that we had really strong science to underpin that. Uh, I think in particular, the most recent uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC report, but especially the work that Chris did with the Working Group 2, which really focused on impacts, on vulnerabilities, on adaptation, was really uh, a, a tipping point in the discussions that led up to Paris. I believe that the information that was brought to bear on the science side that Chris extremely effectively communicated to living rooms, to boardrooms all around the world about what does this actually mean? Why should we care? Why is this something to pay attention to? Really resonated. And that, plus all the other work that has been done, uh, is, is just an amazing accomplishment. It's very exciting. The big win that people, uh, many people concerned about the climate needed. Ken Alex, what does the Paris climate deal mean to you personally? To me personally, uh, a lot more work. <laughs> so so I, I literally, the, the, the morning that it got signed, I get a call from the governor and he says, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, this is really hard. We, we've got to get 40% reduction by 2015, 2030. That's 15 years. We, and we've only got three years left in this administration. What, what are we going to do? <sighs> so I asked him for, you know, maybe an hour off. <laughs> and this is from, a, how old is he, 70? 77. Our 77-year-old governor went to, did 22 events in Paris in four days. And a couple of all-nighters. Or at he, least one all-nighter. Well, not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, so it's a lot of work, but also, you know, how does it feel, this moment of Paris? A lot of people, there's a lot of excitement, excitement a lot of joy. Yeah, I, 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 I agree with all that. I think this is uh, a, a really a moment to say, you know, it would have been nice to have been here before, but here is where we are now, and to... to Really, it feels like a transformative moment. Um, we have 197 nations that have all agreed that we have to do something about climate change. Now, I, I take that with some amount of salt because 
in one year, we'll have an election in this country, and one of those countries might change course. Uh, that would be pretty devastating, but there's still California. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Field, some scientists think this deal is not enough, that it's weak, it's toothless, including perhaps some people in this room. <laughs> it, it is weak and toothless and fabulous. You know, I think that's, that's what people need to understand. Is like, that like a grandpa. <laughs> no, it's not like a grandpa. I mean, it, it's really like a bouquet. Uh, it's, it, it, has, um, it has tremendous moral authority, and it has, I think, as uh, you know, both Jane and Ken have described, the, the opportunity to galvanize next steps. Monkey Moon said it's a foundation and not a it's not an end point. And you know, there is a tremendous amount of work to do, but there's a a, a license and an enabling to do it that I, I think we haven't seen. And and it's it's fundamentally different even than the world was after the Kyoto Protocol was signed, because everybody has been so beat up over the issue that there's really a, a, a recognition that transitioning toward uh, taking a, a proactive stance, it is, it's a really big deal. I, I think that it uh, has the potential to reorient not only the way we think about the global energy system, but the way we think about lots of aspects of international relations. So Jane Lubchenco, what does it mean going forward? Okay, there's a deal, you know, I liken it to everybody's agreed to go on a, on a diet, and now the exercise and, and the sweat <laughs> begins. So where do we go from here? Well, I think uh, that there are a lot of things that will happen because we have an agreement. I think there's a very strong signal to the business community that there are going to be new business opportunities. And that is really powerful. What we need is um, you know, a, a adoption of things that we already have in hand, as well as uh, innovation of new things. And I think this will help spur both of those along. I think that the moral authority that uh, Pope Francis articulated that helped pave the way for the agreement uh, will continue and is uh, an invitation to... Um, various uh, faith-based groups and religions around the world to help be part of the next steps and to be engaged. I think there's, we're seeing a coming together of that. Um, I think that the uh, communities and states like California that are already doing things are, do have more work for sure, but have been leading and will continue to lead. And what we will see, I think, is um, a lot of hard work for sure, but a lot of uh, belief that, in fact, it's going to add up to something. And because the agreement now has built into it mechanisms for um, verification, mechanisms for making new commitments that are more aggressive, uh, I think there is the expectation that this is a start and that there's going to be more opportunity down the road. So I think all of that is coming together and uh, a, a lot of work for sure, but a belief that it's, we're, we're in it together and we're going to make it work and now's the time. Ken Alex, there's something called the Under 2 MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, which 
brings together cities and, and states, and they're acting now, whereas we should note this Paris Agreement starts in 2020, but mm-hmm. governors and mayors are acting now. So tell us what they were doing in, in Paris. So California, uh, along with a province in Germany called Baden-Württemberg, uh, felt that the international community and the international effort didn't have sufficient ambition in terms of our climate goals. And, and to some extent, we, as you just heard, I think we all still feel that way. Um, so we devised a, an agreement called the Under 2 MOU uh, in which all the jurisdictions that uh, signed it agreed to uh, a goal of 80% to 95% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels by the year 2050 or uh, under two tons per capita. And, and the difference there is... Uh, there are uh, developing areas of, of the world that are already below two tons, and it would make no sense for them to reduce 80% from their current levels. And the idea was to bring all of these together. We started this one year ago uh, just as an idea. Uh, and in one year, at, at, by the end of uh, the Paris negotiations, we had 124 jurisdictions representing... trillion of GDP over a quarter of world GDP having signed up to this greater ambition. So now the question is... Yeah, thank you. Now the question is with this coalition, and this includes, you know, 34 uh, jurisdictions in Africa, uh, multiple tropical forest states... Uh, really a north-south coalition that's quite unusual. Um, so what do we do with this? Uh, and, and so now the challenge is, going forward, how do we make sure that this coalition has a voice in the process and these five-year reviews that Jane just mentioned? Um, and how do we keep pushing forward, share information, technology, etc.? cetera? Uh, and that's, that's um, part of my job to, to help figure that out. I want to go to our uh, lightning round. This is a brief uh, yes or no <coughs> question, <laughs> short answer. Uh, for each of our speakers today, we're talking about the Paris Climate Agreement and climate science uh, here at Climate One. Our guests are Chris Field from the Carnegie Institution for Science, Jane Lubchenco from Oregon State University, and Ken Alex from Governor Brown's office. Uh, Chris Field, yes or no, the Paris Agreement is better than you expected it to be. Absolutely, yes. Jane Lubchenco, the Paris Agreement is better than you expected it to be. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Ken Alex, Jerry Brown and Arnold Schwarzenegger were two stars of the Paris Climate Summit. (laughs) Uh, Yes, definitely. (laughs) There's no way I can answer that otherwise. (laughs) Ken's worried about, is that a setup for something else? That's what he's worried about. the biggest laugh line uh, was, what was the biggest laugh line when they did a joint appearance? There, Schwarzenegger said, said something. He, was, he, he went on this long speech, and at the end of it, he said, we're, Jerry Brown and I are tied together. We are, we are like one mind in, uh, wait, two minds in <laughs> one body. <laughs> and, and Jerry Brown got up and he said, I'm not really so sure about that. <laughs> two body thing. Uh, Jane Lubchenco, uh, the Republican silence on the climate deal was deafening. Yes or no? Yes. 
Uh, Ken Alex, did any California Republicans attend the Polaris Climate Summit? If they did, I'm not aware of it. They were in, in costume. Um, <laughs> Ken Alex, you're the longest serving director of Governor Brown's Brain Trust. That means you are Jerry Brown's alter ego. Oh, sure. No, there's a big no. <laughs> um, Chris Fields, some of the scientists sitting in the audience here tonight are jealous of you winning this award. <laughs> no, they <laughs> Chris Field, you were jealous sitting in the audience last year when Jane Lubchenco won the award. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a thanks for a uh, good job. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. The Stephen Schneider Award honors achievement in science communication. But why is it that scientists stereotypically aren't known for their communication skills? Author Joe Rome, founder of the Climate Progress blog, blames their education. He says effective speaking isn't part of most Ph.D. programs. You know, I think uh, the magic secret, which isn't taught, uh, is that the key to being persuasive is to be memorable. And, and modern social science basically shows the stuff that's easier for you to remember, you're more likely to believe, believe is true. And so if that one fact were taught and our communications theory were based around it, all communications at every level uh, would be completely different because numbers aren't what, – what is memorable is stories. And so the point is that um, – you know, scientists are wary of stories. They often sound too good to be true. And, and, and you know, the, the, the logo of the British uh, Royal Society is uh, nulls and verbia. You know, words mean nothing. That's the point. Words mean nothing. But, of course, in the real world, words mean everything. That's Joe Rome, author of Language Intelligence, Lessons on Persuasion from Jesus, Shakespeare, Lincoln, and Lady Gaga. He spoke at Climate One in 2014. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Jane Lubchenco, there's been some climate impacts close to home here uh, in, along the west coast of California. In particular, tell us about the blob and what's happening with the crabs, you know, the Dungeness crab season that's, that's killing us here. Um, we are seeing all sorts of bizarre things happening in the ocean uh, and <clears throat> some of them may well be connected to climate change. We're not sure about the, all of them, or even if they're connected to one another. Um, there has been this mass of warm water that's off the coast, uh, all along the West Coast, that has been persistent and sitting there. Uh, it's been closer to uh, the shore in California than farther up where I live in Oregon, but it's been sitting there. And it's very weird and has caused all sorts of strange other things. One of those may well be this bloom of um, a microscopic plant that makes uh, a chemical called domoic acid. And that is having, we're learning, all sorts of ramifications. When crabs uh, have accumulated... A lot of this domoic acid, um, they should not be eaten by people, which is why the crab fishery has been delayed uh, and perhaps shut down. We're not sure. Uh, it's, uh, so that's bad news for all the crab lovers in the world, uh, uh, and, and especially people who come uh, for Dungeness crab along the West Coast. It's a great delicacy. 
but the same toxin, the stomoic acid, is also affecting sea lions. And it appears to make sea lions, uh, it affects the parts of their brain that are involved in navigation and orientation. And so we're seeing some very significant adverse impacts to the sea lion population. A separate, perhaps, strange thing that's happening is what's called the sea star wasting disease. There has been a mass mortality of sea stars all the way from Alaska down to Mexico that for the last couple of years that is unprecedented in the history of mass mortalities in modern times of, uh, of, of creatures. And it's not just one uh, species of starfish, it's most of them along the West Coast. Now, those sea stars, those starfish, are really important actors in their communities. They determine the abundance of other species, the distribution, the diversity of other species. And to have them pulled out of the f food webs uh, is, is uh, per perhaps devastating. Uh, we're seeing changes in the nature of the upwelling that brings nutrients to the surface that fuels our very productive fisheries. So I think this is emblematic of something that Chris was talking about earlier. There are surprises in the system. There are things that interact with one another. And this is a big set of mysteries off our coast that we don't completely understand, uh, but that may be climate-related. There's also good news in the oceans. Tell us about some of the good news in the oceans. <clears throat> I think you're absolutely right, Greg, to focus on some of the good news, because um, when people come together and use good science and craft good policy and good economic incentives around that, then good things can happen. And the good news story we're really seeing with fisheries in U.S. waters, U.S. federal waters, uh, we've seen an amazing turnaround uh, in that. They're, they're after decades and decades of very significant overfishing uh, in U.S. waters, we've now turned the corner on ending overfishing and are seeing recovery of many species uh, to the level that they can be fished again. Um, let me just give you a few numbers on that. I'll compare two years, the year 2000 and the year 2014. In the year 2000, we had 92 stocks of fisheries in the U.S. that were overfished, significantly overfished. Fourteen years later, that number was down to 37. So from 92 to 37 is a very significant um, achievement. Same two years, year 2000, we had zero stocks that had been depleted and then recovered to the level that they could be fished again. By the year 2014, we have 37 species that have now been fully recovered. Hmm. They can be fished again. So that's an amazing achievement. It was based on good science, uh, very strong engagement, by the fishermen, by the fishing industry in proposing fishery management plans, but also the adoption of uh, rights-based approaches to fisheries, which we call catch shares, that change the incentives for fishermen and enable them to take a long-term view instead of just be driven by short-term economics. So a whole bunch of things have come together uh, to make the U.S 
really a model for sustainable fisheries, and that model has not been lost on other countries. Uh, Europe has now adopted uh, very significant reforms to its common fishery policy because it saw that the U.S. had done it and it copied what we have done. So there's a lot of new energy now around fisheries reform. It's vitally important to food security. It's vitally important to jobs, to communities, to cultural way of life. And we all want to have our fish and eat it too. Uh, And we can do that if we fish smarter, not harder. And that's what uh, this good news story is all about. Smarter, not harder. Jane Lubchenco is a former administrator of NOAA, and that's enough good news. Uh, Chris, <laughs> uh, Chris Field, uh, California's in a drought. Is it going to rain again? What do we know about uh, Some of your colleagues at Stanford have done research on the climate connection to drought. Uh, tell us what's the latest science, and is it going to rain again? No, is it going to rain again? <laughs> The, you know, uh, I think it's going to rain this weekend, if I read it correctly. <laughs> what, what we know is that climate change sets California up where the kind of multi-year droughts that we've experienced over the last four and a half years now are, are more likely. There's, there's no question that the, the uh, table's tilted toward creating this kind of situation. And I think the California drought is really a... Uh, parable for the kinds of things we'll see around the world where we're not going to have disasters every year, but we've really uh, loaded the dice or or tilted the playing table so that uh, unfavorable outcomes are are, are more likely. And in the case of of California's drought, uh, Noah's work shows really clearly that it takes the combination of a dry year and a hot year in order to have a high probability of drought. We used to have occasional hot years and occasional dry years, but now every year is a hot year, and it means that the probability of having the two together is much higher than it was. And 2015 will likely be the hottest year on record. Uh, What does that mean? Is it going to be hotter in 16? You know, what we know is that uh, we're we're leaning really hard on the climate system. We're adding more and more heat every year, but we know that that doesn't always show up in a warmer temperature. The uh, the climate system has lots of modes of internal variability. Kevin Trenberth is a world expert on this. And, and uh, it, it's very clear, if you look at the historical record, that we've seen periods of a decade or even longer when we know we're adding more heat, but the temperature's not increasing because the Earth system is really good at tucking the heat away and, and part of the ocean that we were, uh, where it's not influencing the atmosphere. And I think in the future we'll continue to see that. Uh, when we get the combination of an El Nino like we have now, uh, with uh, large amounts of forcing uh, accumulated, then we're likely to see uh, occasional sort of blockbuster years in a terrifying way. And uh, you know, the evidence is that this may be the first year where we're a, a full 1C above uh, pre-industrial temperatures. And the fact that we haven't seen uh, warming uh, over the last decade that's been at the, the pace it was occurring in the previous decade may, may mean that we're, we're setting the stage for a period of very rapid warming. 
but the internal variability in the system has lots of ways of, of creating surprises. And I, I think that if there's a, a single theme that ought to carry through all of the comments tonight, it's that the, that the way that the changing climate impacts us is much more likely to be through um, an indirect route than through a progressive steady warming. Ken Alex, 2016, probably going to be hot, might be wet, might be dry, depending on El Nino. What's the priorities for the Brown administration for what you want to do in California in 2016? Well, there's a, a, a lot of things going on, um, some of them immediate, some of them longer term. Uh, in January, uh, California will be uh, revisiting the scoping plan. Uh, the scoping plan is the, the document that uh, basically defines what what we're going to be doing uh, in terms of throughout the economy for reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So all all parts of the economy, from renewables in the in the energy system to uh, building efficiency to uh, how are we going to deal with natural and working lands as uh, ensuring that they're sinks uh, for carbon rather than sources. Um, all of that is going to be updated, particularly with an eye towards 2030 and our 40% reduction goal. We're right now on target in California to have to be back at 1990 levels uh, of emissions by 2020. Um, we're on target uh, to be well over 33% of our energy system will be renewables by 2020. But our, our goals out to 2030 are quite substantial and we're working through how we're going to, you know, what, what does that look like over the next 15 years? 15 years to, to go from 450 uh, million tons uh, of carbon emitted every year in California down to 260. Um, that is a very substantial change to all of our lifestyles here in California, potentially, and we're going to do it economy-wide, and we want to do it in a way that is not so disruptive that uh, we create a political dynamic that makes it untenable. Um, and, you know, by the way, uh, we've held ourselves out as, as the, the entity in the world that can do this, so uh, next year will be a challenge. <laughs> and recently, uh, there's been some very good news that global emissions have peaked or, or fallen while the global economies continue to grow, which shows, A, it's possible, and, and that's the direction we want to go. Well, it's important to note that global emissions probably haven't peaked in the historical sense, but what we have seen is that 2013 was about the same as 2012, and 2014 was the same as 2013, and 2015 looks like it'll be even slightly less than 2014, two years when the global economy grew substantially. So what we're really seeing is the early signs that we can disconnect global economic growth from emissions growth. It doesn't mean that we put all the pieces together, but the initial elements are there. I, I view the stable emissions over the last two years as indicating not that we have solved the problem, but that we can solve the problem. And that fighting climate doesn't mean hurting the economy. Uh, we're talking about climate change and science with Jane Lubchenco, Chris Field, and Ken Alex. We're going to go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. My name is Wayne Roth. I'm a member of 350.org. I have a question for Dr. Field. Back in 2013, I heard you give a talk at Stanford. And in the question and answer, someone asked you, well, how many billion-dollar climate events have there been, two or three? And you said 12 or 13, and you said 
It's horrifying. And that word, that emotional word, horrifying, really rang with me and the people around me. It, it, it made us feel something that the scientific words don't communicate quite as well. And I wish that scientists such as yourself would in, occasionally in a public forum like when you were on KQED emphasize the emotional impact to people so that we can understand it better. I um, participated in a forum with Bill and Kibben recently and, and he was talking about our IPCC report and he said, after decades, the uh, IPCC finally uh, got a thesaurus those, uh, <laughs> so they can, they can actually uh, characterize in emotional as well as in factual terms what's going on. And it is really important to find words that connect with people. We had an event here recently talking about the Pope's uh, encyclical and the president of USF, Paul Fitzgerald, said the climate problem was partly about bridging the largest... Uh, distance ever measured, and that is the 12 inches uh, between the human brain and the human heart. Let's go to our next question. I'm John Mashey. Um, this is a question for uh, Dr. Lubchenco uh, dealing with Congress. Over in the House, uh, there is this fellow who has a, a beautifully gerrymandered uh, district in Texas um, that seems to want to bother your old agency. So tell us about the defenses. Will they get through this? Uh, what can we do? Uh, you, you have some perspective and experience on this particular case, I think. Thanks for that question. Um, I passionately believe that uh, science and climate science in particular should not be partisan. And it's highly unfortunate that there are forces that try to make it partisan. And in particular, uh, Chairman Lamar Smith, who chairs the House Committee on Science, uh, has been going after NOAA scientists and accusing them of uh, manipulating science and uh, rushing it to publication before it was really ready. And unfortunately, uh, there are uh, forces to try to uh, discredit the science, to inhibit scientists, to put a chilling impact uh, on the scientific community, uh, much in the same way that has happened in previous years. So this is an ongoing uh, pattern. I, I think what can be done is to really shine a spotlight on it and to say this is really inexcusable. NOAA has uh, a spectacular scientific integrity policy that was created when I was at the helm uh, and for which I'm very proud. And my successor, Dr. Catherine Sullivan, who is the uh, current administrator, has been a staunch supporter of her scientists saying... I'm not going to um, allow them to be uh, abused and discredited. I will stand up for science and stand up for them. So she needs to be praised. The scientists need to be praised. They need to be told that uh, we have their backs and that this uh, attempt to uh, discredit uh, science and go after scientists for political purposes is just really inexcusable. Catherine Sullivan was the first woman to walk in space. Tough person to mess with. Greg, Ken. I just want to note that, that Ben Santer, who's here tonight, uh, has been a very strong voice and has a lot of background in this particular issue around satellite data and has been forcefully responding to uh, Lamar Smith on a, in a number of uh, different ways. So uh, much appreciated. Ken, yes. 
Let's go to our next audience question. Andy Gunther, I'm an environmental scientist here in the Bay Area. Question, Jane, for you is about ocean acidification, which we haven't really touched on tonight. And if you could say a little bit about it, and particularly it's my understanding that there are some important regional differences in the vulnerability to ocean acidification, that the West Coast is uh, a place where we might expect to see the ocean acidify more quickly. Thanks, Annie. That's a really uh, important topic, and we really haven't had time to touch on it tonight. Um, as oceans absorb some of the excess carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere, they become more acidic. It changes ocean chemistry, and that affects all sorts of uh, things, uh, it, the environment in which marine creatures live. Uh, and so especially those that make a shell or a skeleton of calcium carbonate, uh, whether it's crabs or oysters, and that is very real reason for concern, especially uh, for shellfish growers, for example. And we're seeing some of the most dramatic impacts of ocean acidification on shellfish around the world. So it is a, a very serious problem. Uh, the oceans are... Um, 30% more acidic than they were a little over 100 years ago. And uh, the picture is not pretty in terms of what's <coughs> down the road. So this is yet another reason to be reducing carbon emissions as quickly as possible. Uh, the moniker osteoporosis of the sea is uh, a good descriptor of some of the reasons to be concerned about uh, ocean acidification. There is a very real regional uh, difference in how rapidly the oceans are becoming more acidic. Uh, along the west coast, along Washington, Oregon, California, where we have this upwelling of waters from the deep that bring up nutrients to the surface, uh, those places uh, are really ground zero for uh, ocean acidification being the most uh, extreme. And so we are seeing the kinds of changes in the ocean right off our shores that are like what the rest of the world is going to be seeing uh, a number of years down the road. We have to end it there. We've been talking about the recent Paris Climate Agreement and climate science here at Climate One. Our guests have been Chris Field, winner of the 2015 Stephen Schneider Award, uh, Death Ride Stud, and... Uh, <laughs> professor at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford, and Jane Lubchenco, former administrator of NOAA and distinguished professor at Oregon State University, uh, bionic woman of science, and Ken Alex uh, from Governor Brown's office in Sacramento. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs at climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience online on radio and the audience here. I look out the uh, average, the cumulative IQ of this audience is about 600,000, I think. So <laughs> thank you all for joining us today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.